0: Tony's M.O., right, would be to go into these schools, to go into villages and to capture children and then to put them into his army. And so what we were seeing with these multiple of groups that now were operating as the LRA, you know, decades after he had kidnapped a majority of these children were, you had a a child, say Sam Opio, that was kidnapped, let's just say at 13 from a certain village. And now he's 33 operating his own unit.
1: Hello, dear friends and damn givers. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and this is the show where I sit down for meaningful conversations with people who aim to build fewer walls, longer bridges, and bigger tables with their lives and work. My guests want to leave the planet much better than they found it, and I truly hope today's conversation gives you hope and pushes you to give more dams than ever before. My guest on the show today is my friend and one of my heroes, Shannon Sedgwick Davis. Shannon is an attorney and an activist. She is the CEO of the Bridgeway Foundation, a philanthropic organization whose goal is ending mass atrocities around the world. The Bridgeway Foundation is part of Bridgeway Capital, a company that is committed to giving away half of their profits to organizations like the Bridgeway Foundation so they can end these mass atrocities. She is also the author of To Stop a Warlord, My Story of Justice, Grace, and the Fight for Peace. Here's one thing I love about her. She's so freaking humble. This is a woman who knows some of the most famous people in the world. She has spent a lot of time working alongside people like Jimmy Carter, Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu, Mary Robinson. And guess what? Spending time with her You'd never know the responsibility and power she holds and could wield at any given time. What you get with Shannon is a humble, amazing human that would help anyone in time of need. Here's an example. Since we recorded our conversation a few weeks ago, something terrible has happened, and we must talk about it. After a 17-year break in federal executions, eight death row inmates have been executed in the past six months by the Trump administration administration, pure evil. They are trying to rush several more executions before Biden becomes president in 40-ish days. It's no secret that I am an anti-death penalty uh, human. Fuck the death penalty. So naturally, I am horrified, like genuinely horrified, knots in my stomach right now. One of those cases is Brandon Bernard, who was convicted of killing two people in 1999 even though he did not kill the couple and played a minor role in these crimes. He is set to be executed by lethal injection on December 10 for crimes committed when he was a teenager, even though he was an accomplice, not the ones that actually murdered those two individuals. It doesn't make the crime any less severe, but this man does not deserve the death penalty just as no human deserves the death penalty. It makes me sick to even speak about this. So here's the reality. This podcast releases on December 8th. If you're listening within the first couple days, I just told you the date when he's supposed to be executed, December 10. So obviously by December 8th, we'll know more about what's going on. So a few days ago, Shannon and Kim Kardashian started working together, trying to figure out how to make everyone, as many people as possible, aware of Brandon's impending state sanctioned murder to see if we can get it halted. And as you may know, Kim has been very instrumental in helping several people be pardoned by the Trump administration. And she seems to have a lot of passion for helping people stuck in our horrible, unjust criminal legal system. Here's my point. Shannon is behind Kim speaking loudly and working hard to make people aware about Brandon's impending murder and the need to demand that it be halted. And that makes her one of my favorite badasses out there. You're going to love her in this conversation and you better follow her afterwards. Follow her work. She's amazing. Before we dive in, allow me to remind you that you can email me anytime and for any reason at hello at let's damn.com. Make sure you're following us on social media at Let's Give a Damn Everywhere to keep up with everything we are doing and will be doing in the future. 2021 is going to be amazing. We have so much in the works that I don't want you to miss. And now, without further ado, here's my conversation with amazing human, incredible damn giver, Shannon Sedgwick Davis. Let's go. such an honor to have my friend Shannon Sedgwick Davis on the podcast today. Welcome, Shannon. Oh, so good to be here. We have been trying to do this for a while. I feel like actually the last few episodes I've started that way because the last few guests that I've had on um, just tried and tried and tried. Hank Fortner, who lives in LA, runs Adopt Together. We've been trying literally for two years. And, you know, I'm, I'm super patient. I always have a ton of podcasts that, you know, I already have, I have a ton of guests always scheduled and I'm moving them around. So I was super patient for this to make sense and for the right time to happen. And we're finally doing it. Um, you and I have never met in person, but I really feel uh, close to you as a friend throughout the last few months. We've, we were talking before we hit record, we have commiserated and leaned on each other in certain ways during this uh, pandemic and election season. And, um, I'm so thrilled to get to talk to you, not just about, you know, not just shooting the shit, but also like about your work and about your life and all the amazing things you're doing to give a damn. So, so glad you're here.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So we have a lot to talk about because you have done a lot in your life. Um, you giving a damn is not a recent thing as I got to know you more from, from talking to you and also Stalking you on the internet and learning more about your story and all the things you've been involved in, you've been giving a damn for quite some time. And usually, when I start these conversations, I ask people to tell some of their story. And then we get into sort of the thing that they're giving a damn about, whatever it is, right? And that usually is a pretty good flow because when I ask people to tell their story, um, we usually get some indications, some, some ideas for how they became who they are today. With you, though, we're still going to do that, but I want to take the story part a little slower. So I want you to tell your story, but there's really some key points like you getting to the the the, the position you're in right now, not necessarily your job position, but all the things that you're doing. It's taken a long time to get there. It's taken a lot of hard work and you've done a lot of hard things. And so if it's okay with you, that's how I would love to do it. Like, let's spend a good chunk of the time going through your story. I'll interrupt, then we'll stop and talk through stuff, and then we'll keep going because it really has been a fascinating journey. Sound good? Sounds great. So I'll let you start. Go back as far as you want to and give us uh, some of the the who, what, when, where, and whys of your life. Like, I know that as you tell your story, they're going to be, we're going to be able to see, oh, that person that spoken to her life, that person she was around, the parent, the friend, um, this job opportunity, this thing that came up. It's very clear how you got to where you are uh, today. So um, just go back as far as you want and let's just get going and I'll interrupt and we'll go back and forth.
0: great. Great. Yeah, born and raised in San Antonio, Texas, um, and born to a youth pastor uh, who retired. Uh, my mother, who retired after thirty-five years of service, she actually was a youth director. That was a big point of contention uh, in the last decade or so of her service, where I was um, I was really befuddled. You know that she uh, wasn't elevated to pastor status um, and always talked to her about the fact that she was a female and uh, within our conservative church, uh, whether that was one of the things that kind of kept her from, from falling into that position. But my mom has always been someone who has served with her life. Uh, she built an enormous youth group. Over a thousand kids were in her youth group when I graduated high school. Wow. Started in a barn, in a small uh, barn behind our church in San Antonio, Texas. And then my dad was a businessman. He was a bit of an entrepreneur. He started a, a fireplace company Uh, And cabinet supply company in Texas. And uh, so it's, I feel often when I think about uh, whose shoulders I'm standing on, I I feel like I've got some of my father's sort of entrepreneurial spirit. And then a whole lot of my mother's just desire to serve. Um, I was very tight with my mother's parents. Uh, She wanted to go into the Peace Corps. When she graduated high school, and they wouldn't they wouldn't let her go, right? They were a little too fearful at the time and really asked her not to. And uh, my grandmother, when she was at the end of her life, um and I was very close to her, uh, there was one moment where she looked over at my mom and pointed to me and said, um, "I should have let you go to the peace corps." Hmm. and um and we just talked we got to talk a lot about um about me being able to do the international work that I've been able to do. And, um, and my mom's work has largely been domestic. She now runs an inner city organization that, uh, rebuilds homes for those who have substandard housing in the city. The city of San Antonio really struggles with those issues.
1: Yeah. So talk a little bit more about San Antonio. Um, obviously it's in Texas, which is kind of a wild state slash country all in its own right. Um, What is San Antonio like Uh, politically, socially? Like I'm trying to get a picture of the environment that you grew up in, obviously you talked about, which is we could spend an hour on um, our faith backgrounds and how sort of we grew up in church. And even like I grew up in a very, very weird, almost cult-like conservative environment. And the level of, the amount of work that they put into to discrediting women and their leadership ability and their leadership skills, right? Like youth director instead of youth pastor, that takes a lot of, that takes a lot of work to keep up that charade. All That's all it is, is a charade. She was obviously pastoring these kids. She was shepherding them. She was taking care of them, loving them. She was doing the work of a pastor and they let her do that. They paid her to do it. I assume like that was the position that she had. And yet they, uh, wouldn't change that one little word that never made sense to me even when i was younger i was like why is this a big deal like you're taking a couple verses from a bible written by a bunch of men thousands of years ago all men all men let me say that again all men wrote the bible right so there was uh, there was there's a lot going on there right we we, we that we could uh, spend a lot of time talking about but i've seen so many women and it sounds like your mother did not succumb to that she continues to give a damn to this day Right. But so many women are beat down and like stepped over. Uh, and it's wild to me. It's wild to me. So, yeah. So, to give me a give me the lay of the land of San Antonio. And um, was it just the church that she grew up? Well, I guess we're not even getting to, to your church background as well. Was your church background also uh, conservative?
0: It was, it was a United Methodist church, but it was a conservative United Methodist church. um, And I loved, loved my church family growing up, felt deeply at home. Something that was so tremendous about both of my parents uh, relative to the anecdote that we just discussed was that they actually raised me to believe that as a female, there were no barriers to my success Hmm. and I shouldn't view Uh, barriers to my success. Um, I shouldn't let them stop me right? I should bulldoze through those. And that was quite powerful and quite courageous for them. It seems weird to say that, right, in today's time, that that was courageous of my parents, but it really was, uh, given uh, given how we were raised, given that we grew up in Texas, uh, that was really courageous of them in that time uh, to continue to articulate over and over and to continue to show up for me and revalidate my strengths along the way. Uh, San Antonio was a lovely place to grow up. I We lived here until I was in the fourth grade. And then uh, we moved to a small city outside of San Antonio called Bernie, Texas, but spent most of our time in San Antonio. Mom and dad both continued to work in San Antonio. And it's about a 15 minute drive. Um, and so I really did get a small sort of hometown feel in terms of high school. Um, and a much less diverse feel in terms of high school. That that city is much less diverse than the city of San Antonio. The city of San Antonio's population is quite diverse. It's my favorite city here in Texas. I know I'm biased, but mm. a quite quite diverse, um, with a significant Mexican American population, um, a significant African American population, and uh, just really grateful that I've um, that I've grown up in an area where um, where I saw some. Some diversity relative uh, to what I think a lot of people in Texas see, right? Most of the small towns in and around Texas um, are going to look and feel a lot less diverse than what I got an opportunity to experience.
1: So, with it being such a diverse city, let's go present day for a second, then we'll then we'll go back into the past again. Like, given our current political climate and the kind of deep polarization and division that's happening right now. Um what does it look like? What's the makeup right now? I'm not asking if it voted for mostly for Trump or for Biden. I'm just saying like, how does it feel right now politically and societally? Because usually, if you, I, again, I don't know that much about Texas. I've been to San Antonio once or twice. Um, if you look at cities that are very diverse, th- they usually lean you know, more blue than red for a lot of reasons. Um, is that true there? Or what's sort of the the sense that you get from that community?
0: Yes, just using the most recent election as a reference point, um, absolutely, the city of San Antonio went uh, blue for Biden. Uh, the majority of all of the local positions uh, go Democrat. Uh, but it, it was it is very balanced in terms of you don't, it's not a situation where you see 80-20 or something like that. I think the most recent election uh, went Biden by just under
1: 60%. Just a few points. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay. So let's get back to your story. Um, I forget where we left off because we've already gone off on a, on a little bit of a rabbit trail. When did you start? So um, let me ask this and this will get us back on track. When did you start giving a damn on your own? Like what was, what were the things that were leading up to you beginning to feel at home in your own skin enough to say like, I'm, I give a damn about this and I'm going to go after it. Like, what did that, what did that sort of look like?
0: Yeah. So for me, I you know, and I do believe that we're all um, we're all created with um, a certain sense of purpose, and I think that 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 sense is very unique for each individual. And for me, issues of injustice or the issue of justice always was a big driver, right? And you can see fingerprints on that back to my middle school years when I would go around and collect all the stray animals I could find, and my sweet. Poor parents um, would help me find homes for them. Again, doubling down on what it was in all the world that made my heart beat fast, and so grateful to them for doing that when they otherwise could have just completely rolled their eyes and said no. And then in high school, I started to bring home stray kids, right? Kids who had gotten kicked out of their parents' houses because they wow. were not behaving or something. And so I would, I would say, mom, dad, you know, there's this, this girl that got kicked out of her house. We need to bring her home with us. And, um, and then all along the way, there were uh, just moments that you can see, and this is I'm talking middle school and high school years right now, you could just see moments of this, the issues of justice or injustice, sort of this fabric that um, just sort of readily, was hitting my radar. There was one girl um, back in middle school when I first moved. Um, I moved from a, a Christian school here in San Antonio when we moved to Bernie to the public schools there, and um, there was there was one girl who was just heavily mistreated. She didn't really look like um, most of the kids in the class, and. I just remember befriending her on the playground, you know, and, and, um, and feeling like I really wanted to spend time with her. And I remember sort of the next day as the new kid, there were all of these stamps that had come out of a cereal box and they said, you're ugly. And someone had licked all the stamps and put them on my wood desk in my new school. And, um, and I remember trying to fiercely sort of scrape scrape those off uh, during the day as work would go on, and the stamps really stick. Right, they stick different than yes, they uh,
1: do. Things,
0: which really sucked for me, um, and and that was sort of my entree into the the public school, and um, and just sort of doubling down on what I think you know my both my parents raised me to believe, but also what was true to what made my heart beat fast. Uh, which was that we're all this one big, messy ball of humanity, and, um, and we all have equal value. And even though the world doesn't reflect that, and you can go to the far ends of the earth, and you don't find it reflected anywhere um, fully, uh, that that is what is true, And that is what we should pursue with our lives. And so, um, you know, that followed on to um, my time in in college. I ended up going to law school. I think that uh, when people... Observe you as you're as you're growing. Um, they'll often reflect back to you, "Oh, you should do this with your life, or you should do this with your life." Yeah. And I think that actually deeply influences choices people make. I'm actually going to be really careful about that. I think with my my boys, just so that I don't, uh, so that I talk more about validating their gifts and their passions versus that that equals that you should go to MBA school or you should go to law school. But I think for for the only reason, really, um, of people saying, oh, you should go to law school. You're really good at arguing or you're really good at taking a stand. I think that's the reason I ended up going to law school, um, got my law degree and uh, began practicing law in Dallas. Um, big downtown Dallas law firm. Loved, loved what I did. I actually loved it. I loved the idea of being a litigator and, and working um, to fight these injustices at sort of a civil level, right? But um, it wasn't what was actually making my heart beat super fast, right? Justice was a passion for me, but I knew I wanted to expend it in a different way. And that's when I read, uh, Gary Haugen, the founder of international justice missions book and started spamming him, um, telling him that I wanted a job, um, with them. They were very, very new. I was one of their, their very early
1: employees. So what year are we talking about here? Not to interrupt, but where I want to get a sense to where we are.
0: 2001. Okay. Yep. 2001. So almost 20 years ago. And um, and I remember he and I joking. He's, he was like, oh, I only hire lawyers from Ivy League schools. And I was like, well, then you don't have much personality around there and you're really going to need some. So um, it, no, it was it was tremendous. I, I loved every minute of it. It was great to sort of, we were still, we didn't even have offices at the time. We were officing out of a house that we had sort of repurposed in Virginia. And it was great just to sit at his feet and that someone like him who had been responsible and had spent a lot of his career uh, fighting the issues of injustice. You know, he worked in Rwanda after the genocide and uh, was working um, on issues of human trafficking, child labor issues, other things internationally, uh, to sort of be really mentored by him, but also to find my own way in that, right? And to uh, and to have opinions about different approaches and what made the most sense. Cause I, I have evolved a lot even from those days. And so that was, that was my early, my early career there.
1: Yeah. So we're talking about IJM, right? That's With right. Gary Haugen. So international justice mission. And um, and so they're based in, have they always been based in DC?
0: Yes. So, right around DC. So did you have,
1: did you move there or cause remote work wasn't really a thing back then? How, how did that work out?
0: I did. I left the only state in which I'd ever lived. That was scary for my dad. That was the first time my dad and I were very, very tight uh, while I was growing up, and that was a hard one for him. My mom was just completely supportive, but my dad was worried. He was worried for my safety. He knew that it didn't just mean moving to Washington D.C., but that you know, within a few months of moving there, I would end up in Cambodia and I'd end up in different parts of southern India and other regions doing this work. And um, and so I did. packed up everything. I threw it all in this large Ford expedition that I drove, which made zero sense to anyone. Seven miles to the gallon. And the justice space, right? I drove it all the way up. Um I, I remember that I would get made fun of so hard by all of my fabulous sort of liberal international justice mission colleagues um about my car because they all drove very reasonable cars or took the or took the subway essentially. Um but then when it came retreat time, it was really oh, they, yep. for them that I had a big car that we could all load into. So um so I wouldn't let them forget that either.
1: Twice a year they loved you for that That's vehicle. Right. That's right. Um, and what are some of the highlights, uh, before we move on from IJM, I love IJM. Like what were some of the highlights of your work there? What did you get to work on? So for, yeah. And, and maybe even before that, give a quick 20 second elevator pitch for who IJM is and what they, what they do.
0: Yeah. It's an, it's an extraordinary organization after Gary Haugen, the founders work, um, especially with, um, and on the ground during the Rwanda genocide, um, and also after his work with uh, the Department of Justice and some of his important work there, he really saw the need internationally for there to be folks that actually directly intervened in the areas of injustice, and did so by providing lawyers, um, providing investigators, uh, providing folks who were trained security Uh, folks that uh, could actually go in and help implement strategies to get people um, out of awful conditions of injustice. Um, One of the highlights in my time there was we were uh, keeping a close eye on an issue that was happening in a region in Cambodia called Pa. And that area in particular, uh, that you were seeing a lot of young, young girls being sold for sex. Mm. And, uh, we did a lot of sort of undercover work to document that and then went to work with the local authorities to try to convince them to do the right thing. And, uh, we're able to, uh, go in and have a moment where, um, several of these girls were pulled, pulled out of that situation, Uh, What what was interesting too, though, as I reflect back and I think about my current work, it was a really great time for me to also uh, learn some other principles in terms of working internationally, working outside of your own physical communities. Uh, comes with a really unique set of challenges and one that I certainly missed initially in my career. And um, I think a lot of people probably miss initially this idea that we might have the answers or that we sort of with our white American faces can go over and be rescuers is actually quite appalling, right? Um, and we certainly don't come at that. I don't believe anyone comes at that with uh, with actually sinister motives. I believe that, um, that it's very difficult if you have been raised with extraordinary privilege and been raised in a country uh, where you don't have basic barriers um, to accessing justice, that um, that you can presume that you've got it figured out and that you can presume that you are the solution. And what that time there really helps solidify for me is, no, not at all, quite the contrary. Actually, those on the ground, right, those who are living and facing these issues every single day, actually know the way to solve for these issues. They sometimes lack some basic resources in order sure. to do it. and. We need to be listening deeply and we need to be invited to participate in providing some of those basic resources, all the while remembering that um, that it isn't our work really, yep. right? But it's actually their work uh, that we're there to help in some small way with. And that was a really important lesson. And without that lesson, I don't think I would have been able to um, do the work that I've done over the last decade.
1: I love You just pointed out one of my favorite things, maybe my favorite thing, probably my favorite thing about IJM is the it's it's all cloaked, covered in humility. Mm -hmm. Um there is no going in there as the savior. There is the hey, we're damn good at what we do, but if you need us, we're here for you, right? Like there's no it's it's partnering with the local authorities and local organizations. It's not going in and sort of taking over. And you guys, like IJM probably could do that. Like they're well-equipped to do that. They could do it all probably, but it would take a lot longer. And like you just said, they don't know, you know, if you're going into some random place in, you know, Cambodia or Darfur, wherever it is, like, you don't know what they know about their place. You need them. And so just recognize that and take the humble position and say, we, yeah, we, we're going to come and help if you need us, how do you need us? Like, how can we serve you? And uh, that, to me, is one of the, that's that's the best way to serve overall, but especially um, when you're dealing with delicate situations, like people that are being trafficked for work or for sex or for whatever. Like, you need the help of those on the ground. Um, I love that. That is uh, was sort of one of your big launching pads into this work because I'm sure, and I and I I can see that in your life that greatly influenced you in the way that you have continued to work, as you just stated. I love, 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 love IJM. Okay. So what, so IJM, how long were you there? And what did you go on to do next?
0: I was there about four years and then headed on to do some work uh, on the, at the other end of the spectrum, right? In terms of funding for, organizations like IJM and others who are doing this, that work. It was, um, I thought I would spend my entire career at IJM. It was actually terribly, um, a terribly difficult decision. I, uh, I had gone to undergrad and my undergrad had been paid for but I uh, went to law school and had a huge amount of law school loans. And I put those on deferment when I went and moved up to IJM, making a third of the salary that I was making at sure. the law firm that I had joined. And uh, that, w- that reality was stacking up. And so there was an opportunity to work for um, actually the funding side. And I thought to myself, OK, I'm going to do this for 18 months, pay off my law school loans and head right back to IJM. And that just wasn't in the cards. Um, they, uh, I'm still incredibly great friends with Gary Haugen and huge fans of their mission. But uh, it turned out that I was meant to uh, to do this other work and to look at the funding side and sort of the financial enabling side of uh, of these justice issues, at least for a while. And um, and that's what ultimately led me to uh, the last. Now, 13 years of of my career have been spent with an organization called Bridgeway Foundation, which is the charitable giving arm of Bridgeway Capital Management. Uh, They give away 50% of their profits a year, their money management mutual funds company. And I have the privilege of leading the foundation uh, in an effort to try and stop mass atrocities on the globe.
1: That's amazing. And we'll, we'll get to Bridgeway in a second because that's incredible work that I know little about. I, don't, I know very little about. I just know what I you know can see from your bios and stuff. And I've checked out the websites and all that. But it's fascinating to me, a company that would, I want to spend some time there because I think one of the ways we fix shit in the next decade or two is more companies doing that same exact thing. Because money is that, let's go back to your, you know. I guess if I'm doing the math correctly, like 2005, six, seven is when you left you know, IJM to do, to be on more of the fundraising side. Let's talk about money for a second. Um, money is the one thing I might be oversimplifying it here. I probably am, but in my, in my view, money is, let's just say, put it this way, is one of the greatest, uh, impeding factors to ending so much of the shit that's happening in the world, right? Whether it's human trafficking, sex trafficking, water, hunger, medical care, like you name it, the foster care system, like money is one of the great barriers there. So we have, you know, lots of people with lots of money and we have lots of people and organizations and they figured out systems and ways to fix these things. And then there's this money. There's a whole lot of money that's needed in between to make that happen so as you switched from as you went from ijm making a third of the salary you did before to jumping into this new venture um what were some of the things that you learned were there any like really big lessons that you learned about fundraising cuz you know i think what you're going to describe about some of the things you learned those aren't naturally uh what you think about when you think about fundraising for for a lot of these uh problems and issues in the world because again we, we have all the money we need, like all the money exists in the world right now to fix everything, and yet there's a breakdown, whether it's the humans not being generous enough or the systems instruct the systems and structures to get the money from point A to point B, or the vision is not being told well, the story's not being told well, something's happening that is preventing us from fixing so much more than we currently are. So help us, because you're the, you're the expert here. Uh, even before we get to talking about bridgeway foundation like what were some of the things that you learned about money and fundraising uh, during those couple years before you joined uh, bridgeway
0: yeah I mean there's a number of issues you hit on the obvious the most obvious and biggest one I, the income inequality in our our country but also in in many countries is um is abhorrent
1: yes to say the least yeah
0: it's actually perhaps only because so much violence and other things that are all equally or more abhorrent stem from it. It's perhaps the greatest injustice on the planet is, uh, is income inequality. And- I
1: agree with you because, and not to interrupt you, but money is uh, the biggest source of stress and trouble in homes, in communities, in marriages, in partnerships, when you don't have money, you do things that you otherwise wouldn't do. Right. So you're right. We could look at violence. We could look at trafficking. We can look at all these other problems happening. They go back to money, most of them.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah. And just in lack of resources and a lack of just sort of ultimate fairness and, and how we view people. I mean, the fact that there is still extreme malnutrition on the planet uh, is is shocking. Uh, given how much wealth exists on the globe. Uh, this idea that there are people that still can die from not having enough food to eat or die because they have no access to clean water. Um, that is something that we all should really sit with. And um, and it should make all of us deeply uncomfortable. Um, and I don't mean it just should make Jeff Bezos uncomfortable. It should make all of us deeply uncomfortable. And, uh, and we should think about systems that we've allowed to perpetuate uh, that allow that. But on the fundraising side, thinking more about organizations that that need to raise funds, uh, what I have seen sort of as a theme being both someone who's had to ask for money for uh, different missions that we want to accomplish, but also being on the funding side and being able to send money to organizations and others who need those funds. What I would say has been an overarching um, concern for me in that space is that there is almost a power dynamic there that should never exist, right? Uh, The person with the money that's capable of giving the money or granting the money to organizations in need has seemingly all the power. The person asking for that is seemingly in a sort of subordinate position, you know, in requesting that and then being subject to terms of of that money that's released. And that's appalling um, because again, it is not It is not appropriate and is deeply troublesome to assume that just because someone ended up making several hundred million dollars on a business that they chose to spend their life on and someone that graduated the same school as them decided instead to try and go cure cancer uh, with their life, or to go and help the homeless populations in the inner city with their life, or to go and try and stop human trafficking. To think that there's a power dynamic there, or that the person with the money is more worthy, is actually shocking. That actually should, if anything, be flipped. You know, it should be that I, as a fundraiser for trying to stop girls from being used for sex um, and being trafficked. Uh, I should not only approach this person who has the financial resources, but I should do that boldly and courageously. And I shouldn't view that as a, oh, like I'm going to have to ask for this and it's going to be awkward. I should view it instead as my responsibility and as part of the mission to put that on their radar screen and to put it in their face um, and to require them to sit with those issues. Now there are times where, I mean, we we obviously have to say no to a lot of grant requests we receive, but um, I would hope that we are treating those who come to us with that basic respect and that they understand that they actually honor us by asking us to participate with them. At times, it may be that we we're out of funds for a given year, or maybe we're focusing on a different geography or a different issue. Um, But I am honored that you've reached out to me to ask, and um, and I think that dynamic has got to change. It's it's just not appropriate. We also ask. There's also another weird dynamic, right? That that goes on in the nonprofit versus for-profit world, where we feel like people who've already made just these extraordinary circumstances to oftentimes put their lives at risk, to work maybe 10x what someone in the corporate world is doing to go and execute on these audacious ideas, the idea of bringing clean water to the entire world, the idea of no one ever going hungry from lack of food again, Uh, the idea of every uh, child having innate worth and deserving of an education, to go and attack those problems. um, And then for some reason, Culturally, at least as Americans, we then add this burden on them saying, not only should you choose to sacrifice your time in this way after going after these crazy audacious, audacious missions, but you should make about a 10th of what a stock trader makes um, in New York or a 10th of what someone at a big corporation who's working a nine to five job might make. And that, that to me is also appalling uh, because oftentimes people are traveling for that work. That work adds a a tremendous burden to a family and uh, financial resources help with that, right? They help with uh, being able to free up that person's time when they are at home to be with their family and their children, uh, making things a little bit easier when they're traveling. So Anyway, the system's quite broken, and I'm glad that you asked about this.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm so fascinated by it. We've been talking about again. I think uh, the timing. Uh, timing is everything, and noth- everything happens for a purpose. Uh, over the last few podcast episodes with different guests, we I've talked about money. Money's so fascinating to me because you're so right. We look at someone that has a lot of money, and we think they're better than. And that most of the time couldn't be further from the truth um, most people that are obscenely wealthy did not earn that money. They, they, they inherited it from their, uh, parents or grandparents or whatever. Right. So they literally came into wealth. They didn't earn it. And, you know, there's this conversation in America that I hate, 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 which is just, which is, I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not anti-capitalism. I am anti-crony capitalism. I'm pro-conscious capitalism but this, I, this conversation around capitalism where it's like, well, that dude fucking worked hard for it. And I'm like, hard work had nothing to do with it. If you want me to show you hard work, come into my house, we'll have supper together. And then around nine, 10 o'clock, I'll drive you to downtown Nashville. We'll go to any of the sky, any of the tall buildings in town. And I'm going to take you to the sixth floor to that Mexican immigrant lady or man that is cleaning those offices after everyone goes to sleep. And that's her second job of the day, so she can put food on her table. That's fucking hard work. That's a hard worker, right? Like, it's not about hard work. It is, I mean, making a lot of money is so much about right place and right time and luck. Now, I don't take that for granted. Like, I've had some lucky breaks and right time and right place. I know... I'm the richest when it comes to my network and the people that I know, you and so many others. So I, I don't take that for granted that something in the universe, God brought us together, right? As friends at some point. And that that happens all over the place. Like, I'm so grateful. So, but we can't just put it on hard work, right? We can't just say, well, they should work harder so they can get out, which is so much of the rhetoric, the conversation around money. And it just further, it just further hurts the who we could become not just as a country but as a planet as a globe if we were to all come together and say that's not how we should be talking about it and these people that are sacrificing so much to uh solve these issues i mean another thing uh i mean they've they've talked this is talked about all the time $80,000 is w- where you stop being you're no more happier like $80,000 you can pay for pretty much anything, not everywhere. There's some really expensive cities, but most places you can live well on $80,000. So Jeff Bezos, who has profited $60, dollars in the during the pandemic alone, he is $67 billion richer. He is no happier than someone who makes $78,000 a year. So if you're no happier, I'm not saying don't, I'm all for people making as much money as they can in so much as they use that money in so much as they see their privilege, they see what they've been given by God or the universe or ho- however they believe, and then they say, now I'm going to use this for good, right? But the idea that more money is going to make you happy and that we should we should look at, again, going back to my first statement, that we should look at people as better than because they have all of this money um, is preposterous. It's insane. And it's, I think it's, I, I might be going too far, but I think it's evil. I think there's some evil in there that we would uh, c- caricature and uh, put people in a box based on how much money they have because I, I could, you and I could put together 100 examples during this conversation of people that are doing such incredible work in the world that they should have the 80, $90 million uh, net worth because I know that they would limit themselves to 150, $200,000 a year salary and, and, and then uh, intentionally and carefully give the rest away, right, invest it back into, uh, uh, you know, fixing these issues that we see in the world. So I love how you talked about like, no, when I when I find somebody that is super uber wealthy, I shouldn't be nervous. I shouldn't tiptoe around that person. I should, I'm doing them a service by telling them of the opportunities they have in front of them to help fix X, Y, or Z issue, to help fix X, Y, or Z thing in the world. And I'm doing them a disservice by tiptoeing around it and acting like they're better than or bigger than uh, me, me marching into their office and saying, I think you need to help with this. Right? I love it.
0: Exactly, and I would argue that someone like Jeff Bezos might be more happy actually Um, if he had found a way to share a significant portion of that wealth with those who helped him create it. Right? Yeah. Pretty shocking how in our country, a lot of times these companies can um, be aggregated around one person in terms of where wealth is created. But there's often an army of individuals who are helping make that happen, including the individuals you mentioned that you see at night on
1: the sixth floor of your high rise in Nashville. I, I I didn't do the math on this, but someone tweeted out that Bezos could give, I think it was a $200,000 bonus to every Amazon employee, all tens of, maybe it's hundreds of thousands, like $200,000 cash. Here you go. And it wouldn't even wipe out what he has made since the pandemic started. Like, imagine imagine that.
0: I know. But can you also imagine how happy he would be if he did that? He would be so fucking happy. Joy. Can you imagine the joy of those thousands and thousands and thousands of families and people that work and help create value for him? Uh, being honored in that way. Can you imagine the letters, the handwritten letters he'd get from their kids because college funds would get funded for their children, or the letters he'd get from his employees who had always had a dream of publishing a book and now had a a, a little extra money to self-publish a book of poems that they had written, or just to bring their goodness into the world? I mean, one person, you know, our the circum like the circumspect about us and around us as an individual is so small but then we have this ability to have collateral damage or collateral good um everywhere and he um more than most has an extraordinary ability to do that so i think he would just be so incredibly happy he might be someone who then makes over 80,000 is a little bit extra happy because of how he chose to spend it
1: right yeah no absolutely I um I I couldn't agree more. I think I was just talking about with my priest this morning. We we were talk we got into money a little bit because I'm thinking about it a lot. And I told him I said we need more people, Shannon, like you and me and like many others. I think we need to pursue um I grew up in a very scarcity mindset home. I love my parents. I'm one of 12 kids. They did not make a lot of money. Uh, we were poor in every single way. We were always cared for, always had food on the table. You know, we had pizza night once a week. Like we had we, we had enough, but we were poor, all things considered, for 12 kids. And then a lot of the sort of even faith groups, faith communities that I was a part of for the next few years, even into my young, even into my early adult years, um, very much a scarcity mindset, very much like kind of self-imposed poverty right? Like we're not even going to try to make a lot of money because we can be holier and, and better uh, without it. And I think that's wrong. I'm not saying that's wrong for everybody. I think there are people that take vows of poverty intentionally and they live that out. And we've seen beautiful, beautiful stories come from that all throughout history. But I think those of us that have sort of um, trained ourselves to see money uh, for what it truly is, for what it can do for humanity— and to know that it feels good to take care of our own and our communities, right? Uh, I think people like you and me need to, and so many people that are listening right now that have a heart for giving a damn and and, and and living a meaningful life, we need to make as much money as possible so that we can, so that there can be more examples in the world of what it looks like to uh, build wealth and then give it away, Right? I think we need we need thousands, millions of people to do that. We're still taking care of our own. We're still whatever we need to do: save up, invest, all of that good stuff. That is that is that's good. Those are good things to do. But we know our limits. We know what money can and cannot do. We know what money can and cannot buy, and we know also the negative effects of money if we let it begin to control us. I think so many of us need to to spend lots of time becoming really wise and really astute when it comes to money. So we can make as much money as possible and then find beautiful, beautiful ways to give it away.
0: But if you look at data, what's interesting is you'll find that those who make the least amount of money percentage wise tend to be the most generous and they're giving. Right. And so that does beg the question at least, um, are we doing it right? Like, should anyone ever have that much money? Right? Uh, should should people really um, those who are in a in a position within their communities to make really the best decisions about how to deploy capital? What does it look
1: like to empower them? Agreed. Uh, it's really it's really interesting. Well, no, I I I totally agree. I mean, I I, I hold a very controversial belief that billionaires should not exist. If you make a billion dollars, you've done something wrong, right? You went, you talked about all these people, the, the, the whole, not just village, the whole empire that it takes for someone to make a billion dollars that then they go away on their measly salaries. That's horrific. Again, maybe I'm misusing the word. I don't think I am. I think it's a little bit evil too. And so again, I'm all for people making money in the right way, which I think if you make money in the right way, you won't become a billionaire. So if there's a lot of people out there that have, that figure out how to make a million dollars a year, right? So in their in their collective adult life, working hard and doing the right things, they might make 50, $60 million in total, but then they limit themselves to 200,000 a year. That's a good salary. We can go on vacation. We can do all the stuff we need to. That's $800,000 a year that can be given away, right? But that takes a lot of work, which is why... um, if if you have you know for people that have a faith background you look at these sacred texts it, 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 i was talking with my friend hank last night on the podcast hank fortner in la um he'll be on i think the week before you we talked about how um there are many warnings in the bible about becoming rich and then you see these uh not i think yeah we have to put it in proper perspective because i don't think it's even about i think when you get to the heart of the matter it's not it's not about becoming rich because that's a real subjective statement. Like rich is, uh, I mean, rich according to everybody in the world is like $30,000 a year, 30, 40, like you're already above most of the people in the world. So again, it's very subjective um, what rich actually means, but you have this, the widow's might, right? The story in the Bible of this woman who gave her last coin and Jesus said, she's more blessed than the, Religious leaders and those that came in and dropped a a few more coins in her or a lot or many more coins in her, but it didn't even hurt them. It didn't even affect their pocketbook. They they were unfazed by the amount of money that they gave. So it's a very complicated, um, I think, issue to work through. All of us have to do that homework for ourselves because you and I can't sit here and say, well, this is the amount of money you should make every year, give the rest away. Like it's not that easy. I think the point is there's so much money to be made out there. And I think it's incumbent upon us to figure out how to make some of that money, make a lot of that money, and then use it wisely. You know, use it use it to give it away because there are so many things that can, not exclusively, but they can be fixed when money yeah. is on the table, when we have the money to fix these things. I think of charity water. I always think of charity water. Um, I love so much what they're doing. They figured out the systems and structures for eradicating lack of water on the planet, like they could do it right now if they had the billions of dollars it takes to do it. They've got the well systems, they've got the trackers. They can they know when they need to be fixed. It's not like they're putting wells in and then five years later they break down and they never get fixed. No, no, they've got a whole system in place. What's lacking? Money. If they have the money, they've got the people, they've got the the skill set, they've got the actual wells and the 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 trackers and the radars and all the stuff to actually eradicate you know water. And that's just one one issue. So I think we're on the same page. Hopefully that helps some people. Let's yeah, keep moving it's though. Been a
0: privilege. It's been a privilege to serve on their board. Uh, they inspire me every you're, day. You're
1: on, you're on charity waters board as well.
0: I, I am. Yes. Nice. Yes. It's such, yeah. It's such, such a privilege. And, and, um, and,
1: and Scott's one that also impresses me. You know, I asked when I first started, let's give a damn. I asked Scott to be on the podcast and he, um, he said, no, maybe he'd say yes now. I I don't care that he said, no, that's his, that's his, that's, that's uh, fine for him to say no. But I think it was around like the word damn was in my title and he's, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't use that kind of language or whatever. And again, that's totally fine, but I've always admired the hell out of him. He was on Dax Shepard's podcast last year and he was talking about like Dax was kind of like, he was sort of jabbing at him because Scott, you know, he he founded this amazing organization doing you know tens of millions of dollars a year fixing this big problem and scott mentioned that he drives like a kia whatever the kia uh like uh, the kia suv is right and 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 dax couldn't believe that he's like you're leading this incredible organization like how do you not have i'm not saying go get an, a crazy car but like a kia what and scott's like i don't need anything more than a kia why would i buy more than a kia like a key is what we need. It's what we, that's all we need. Like we're just getting from point A to point B. And I love that mindset. Um, I mean, that's, that's why I think he's had such great success with charity water and won't continue to because he sees money in its rightful place. He knows where it needs to be used. It doesn't need to be used on buying a fancy car because he lives, you know, or lived or lives in New York city. Um, so, well, let's, let's move on because we are, we spent a lot of time there. I love that we did but I still have so much more that I wanna talk to you about. Bridgeway Foundation. So last 13 years, you have worked uh, with, so Bridgeway is the company that gives away 50% of their profits, and that money goes into the Bridgeway Foundation, and then you are in charge of, I know I'm oversimplifying this, but giving it away, right? So what does that work, what does your work look like in the last uh, 13, 14 years?
0: Yeah, so we have a mission statement, and it's part—I mean, it's an intrinsic part of the capital management mission statement because the mission and the vision of the company—they're—they're they're all united, and that is to see an end to genocide, mass atrocity on the globe. And so, originally, when I started with them, it looked like you know, upwards of a hundred grants, small grants to multiple countries a year. Uh, And then we just got into a place where it felt like we were just putting Band-Aids on bullet holes, right? Mm -hmm. We would rebuild a school after a rebel group would come and burn it down. Or we would fund, uh, importantly, fund groups like Invisible Children and others to make a big stink to try to get US government or United Nations and others to really intervene in the actual mass atrocities. And I just looked in the mirror one day and I was like, you know, we either need to change our mission statement or we need to actually try and do what we say that we're setting out to do, which is actually to try and end war, try and end mass atrocity. And so I brought this audacious idea to my board, which I sit on and uh, thought, oh, there's a good chance I'm going to get laughed out of the room and quite the opposite, right? Um, I seemed at the time to probably be the uh, the least sure that we should pursue that, even though I was the one putting it on the table. And the board was like, let's go try. And so we then very much narrowed our focus. We picked a conflict to look at and to actually see if it made sense to intervene in that conflict and try and stop it. Uh, So while we'll pull the advocacy levers on the front end and we'll pull the aftercare levers on the back end, we also wanted to be right in the heart of intervening. And so we set out to do this crazy thing to try to stop a war. We chose um, Africa's longest running war at the time, the LRA. We had been funding Invisible Children, which had made a lot of it, had really garnered a lot of attention around Joseph Kony and the LRA. We were actually their first foundation funder. And so we were deeply familiar with this conflict. And um, and off we went. And 10 years later, we uh, the year before we started, Uh, There were almost 800 people killed by the LRA, and uh, last year there were five. Um, We've seen a tremendous decrease in... um, in abductions and killings, um, over 90% on both fronts. Uh, there were three international criminal court indictees, including Joseph Coney himself, uh, that were the initial indictees of the international criminal court. Our, in our work, we were able to remove two of the three of those, and just saw uh, how justice brought this collapse of a system. And, uh, and we did it all by working with just these extraordinary partners on the ground who knew what they needed to get it done and uh, just needed a few a, a few little things brought along to bear to
1: help them out so you wrote an incredible book called to stop a warlord my story of justice grace and fight for peace which is what you're talking about right here right it's it's the but what 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 i don't and i've read the book it's fa- it's fascinating i'd love for you to talk for a few minutes about okay, so you guys helped, you guys tried to stop this this mass atrocity, this war. What does that actually look like? Like, what did you guys do? I know you said you came alongside, but how does that happen? How does one try to stop? And to my knowledge, Joseph Kony is still alive and at large, right? As far as anyone knows. But it
0: is, Yes, we had to change strategies. You know, I think we set out to kind of cut the head off the snake and thought that would end this war. And what we ended up doing was cutting the snake off the head. And uh, Joseph Coney very much is uh, still out there, but uh, is not causing uh, the level of problems that he was. Uh, by well, no, any-
1: it, yeah, I mean, it can if you said it went from 800 down to five, like, Obviously, what you all were doing, you didn't get Joseph Coney, but you cut off a lot of what he was doing, which is, you know, maybe it's not the ultimate goal, but that's damn near uh, stopping what was happening there.
0: Yeah. And we had to reframe that in our heads. Like perhaps that was the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal was really, truly stopping the suffering. And so what we did was we just spent a lot of time deep listening. We went and I you know spent months out of every year on the ground, just listening and looking for the reasons that this group has had been allowed to flourish. And they were operating in a huge, huge area, right? They were operating across three or four different countries and in a terrain that was very um, impermissive. It was a terrain that had you know triple canopy jungle and in certain parts, um, no cell service, uh, oftentimes no you know, HF radio service, um, just truly, truly no man's land to, to a large degree. And so we recognized in talking with people who were a lot smarter than us and who had spent a lot of time on these issues, and mainly those who were, were local to the region, that they were missing two things. They were missing communications, like an ability to warn each other of impending attacks, because often one village would get attacked by the LRA, and then it would move 20 kilometers and attack the next village. Well, if village A could warn village B, then village B could at least flee, you know, and that would that would help stop the bleed. Um, but also communications is often really helpful in determining how the enemy's moving and what that looks like and, and the choices that they're making. Uh, the second thing that was missing uh, as we looked was training for the Ugandan military that had a mandate to pursue the LRA in these additional countries. And um, and they needed some training for the current uh, warfare that they were involved in, right? There was this, this, it's an asymmetrical group, rebel group that was causing this kind of trouble. And it was oftentimes in these tiny little units in multiple places across this large swath of land. And so the easy one to do was communications. It's like sure, and when I say easy, it wasn't easy, but it was much easier than saying, "Oh, we're going to train a military," which was was just comical to think about. And so um, we did. We we helped provide uh, information and communications equipment, HF radios, and we started to just get this you know, groundswell of information that really then almost. Push the point even further with regards to training, because then at that point, we really understood the tactics to a certain degree and the way in which the LRA was moving. And so at that point, we did uh, we did we decided to fund a private military contractor to help train the Ugandan army that had the mandate uh, via the African Union uh, to go and try to stop this group. So you were able then to see the complement of relentless pursuit of the group. Uh, And this complement of communications and that tool uh, really leading to this extraordinary breakthrough and stopping it. And so Coney's MO, right, would be to go into these schools, to go into villages and to capture children. And then to put them into his army. And so what we were seeing with these multiple of groups that now were operating as the LRA, you know, decades after he had kidnapped a majority of these children were, you had a, a child, say Sam Opio, that was kidnapped, let's just say at 13 from a certain village. And now he's 33 operating his own unit in an area. And as intelligence came in and as communications really thrived in that area, we would know the approximate area Sam Opio was operating in for instance. And so we eventually, I mean, who would have ever thought that this is where my career was gonna go. We eventually leased helicopters. Uh, We bolted speakers to the sides of the helicopters, opened the doors went back to these villages, right? Where, who, where's Sam Opio's mom? Is she still alive? Where's his sister? Recorded messages from family members on our iPhones, would plug them into the speakers and then would hover in the helicopter over regions that they thought were, they were operating and really play for them messages asking them to come out. And um, and we saw almost 800 come out in our last Wow. Real- active year walk out, Um, and the Ugandan government also really was key in making this happen because they decided to grant amnesty to anyone who was not an ICC indictee, so any of the other but the three uh, were granted amnesty, and so there was a path to actually walk out, to walk out and away from something that you never signed up for and that you were involuntarily co-opted and brought into and to go back home. And then there were resources provided for them to resettle and start a new life. And that ended up being the domino effect for us and really ending this. Kony was always the coward that was going to hang out in the Darfurry region, far away from where everyone else was, and, um, and just sit in his hut all day. And taking away his ground troops and just sort of taking again, like cutting the snake off the head, taking that apparatus away, uh, really, I think undermined his ability to uh, continue to wreak the terror and the havoc uh, that he was hoping to wreak.
1: How many of what sort of happened? I know you said that you provide resources and help to those that come out of it, right? What's um, we don't need to get into specifics for the sake of time, but, are they recovering well? Like, what are some of the, the hardships that they have to go through as they sort of like, I don't know, deprogram, you know, uh, sanitize their minds and lives of the brainwashing that they had received over, you know, over the 1, 5, 10, 15, 20 years? What does that look like?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's absolutely still trauma, but let me be very clear that these people kick our ass at life. I mean, Mm. they have an extraordinary resilience and ability to just step up from a humanity perspective. And it's baffling to me, and I want people to know and understand the individuals I've had this opportunity to work with because they would realize how lost we often are here as Americans. Because you can imagine then again, right, when you come out in this amnesty sense, you can imagine that these people were involved, these children, you know, later became fighters who were involved in killing others, right? And to watch these communities do these extraordinary forgiveness ceremonies, they're called matuput, And what happens is that they're brought into a village and reintegrated after 30 years, right? She hasn't seen her son in 13 years. I mean, she hasn't seen her son since he was 13. He's 33, whatever it's been. And as they walk into these villages, um, before the mom and the child or the sister and the child, who's now an adult, embrace, the entire community sits around in a circle And they drink this liquid and it's made from a, it's basically called the bitter root. And they all drink it out of the same vessel and pass it around the circle together. And it's this great understanding and significance for them of we all share in the pain of Mm. what happened, specifically to you, but to our communities as well. And we're all agreeing to share in that pain. And then they place an egg in the middle of, of the ground. And as he walks across to hug his family, uh, he steps on the egg and the idea is the outside's dirty, but inside all is new and that we will walk forward together in power. And it's beautiful. You know, think about how much money in America we spend on getting law degrees, in my instance, MBAs, getting, um, you know, master's and whatever have you, doctorates, And these people, largely who haven't even had primary school education, are schooling us in how to do life. I mean, we, we talked about this. We're grumpy because uncle so-and-so voted different than me in the election. Or we're mad because someone cuts us off on the highway and I'm like laying on my horn and I'm just as guilty of it, which is crazy given what I've seen in the world. Or someone with 20 items gets in front of me in the supermarket line and it clearly says 15 items on the sign and right, I got scared of right. be. And uh, this idea that, um, that we can be as educated as we want to be, but that um, what really is most important is that we know how to do life together and that we really have an eye towards a collective humanity and what it takes to bring peace in a community. And I just wish, um, I wish that they could come over here and school us on that because we certainly need it. I know I do.
1: That's hard to that's hard and beautiful to hear. I love that. And hopefully someday they can help us. We need we need to hear from them. Um, let's begin to wrap up. I have a couple more questions, things I want to bring up um as we wrap up. Very important things, though, because I, I want to spend the last couple minutes of you sort of giving a giving some help and giving some vision to the let's give a damn family here as we wrap up. Um in your TEDx talk that you gave a few years ago on human trafficking, you shared a journal entry that you had written for your two, your two sons who at the time were much younger. I think two and five is what you said. And at the end of that journal entry, you said these words, which I think are just so powerful and, um, and they're truth, they're truth. I talk about this all the time. I haven't used this language, but I love it. You wrapped up by telling them knowledge equals notice knowledge equals notice. And then after, the, after you finished that journal entry, you told the crowd, like, you're on notice. So talk about that knowledge equals notice and how that applies to each and every person listening, each and every person listening.
0: Yeah, you know, It's our great responsibility as humans, um, again, to really play our part in the fabric of humanity. And that means that if I'm aware of an injustice happening anywhere, then I have a responsibility to that. And we've seen where time and time and time again, we don't learn from history. Hmm. And that continues to fail us, right? Think about the Holocaust. Think about Khmer Rouge. Think about what happened in Rwanda with the genocide. Hmm. Over and over and over, we aren't learning this essential lesson, lesson that an injustice anywhere is relevant to each and every one of us. And I think that that's my point, right? Is that when people say, what can I do to help? Like, oh, that's amazing. You went, you traveled, like I'm just here in my community. And it's like, this is happening everywhere. So first and foremost, just become knowledgeable. Really listen learn. This applies beyond issues of injustice, right? And then in doing so, at that point, you're put on notice. And so that little voice that always appears in each of our hearts and minds, no matter how cerebral we are versus how emotional we are, the voice might be a little louder in some of us, but the voice is always there. Stop stepping on that voice. Stop squashing it. Because every time you hear that voice, it is an invitation for you to play a role that you are uniquely created, I believe, in all the world to play with regards to that issue. And um, we're all just, we're all not hearing our invitation very much, like yeah. it feels like. And we're not stepping up to that invitation. And what awaits us if we do? is not actually a whole lot of work. Like, oh, that'd be really hard to go address that issue or a whole lot. It's actually what awaits us is what I believe to be some of the greatest moments of joy in our life because we actually get to connect with who we are uniquely created to be and get to connect with these deep passions in our heart and get to meet like-minded individuals and connecting um, on those issues. And so I just, uh, I really hope that more and more we will start listening to those voices inside of our head and and actually acting acting on the notice that we've received.
1: Yeah, we talk all the time on this show about everyone having a role to play, every single person without exception. And the cool thing about everyone playing a role if everyone decides to act on that, which they should, is that the work gets more evenly spread. And mm-hmm. some of the some of the joy comes from uh not having to bear so much of the load, right? Those of us that are in this work all the time, like sometimes it can get very heavy, it can feel very heavy because there's just a lot to do. But for every one of us, there's a lot of people that haven't, to use your words, haven't responded to the invitation. Now you know what you know, what What are you gonna do about it? They haven't responded, they haven't figured out, okay, I can't do everything, but I can do something what is my role? What have I been placed on this earth to do? Another, I think right after you shared that journal entry in the talk, you said sometimes in the business of life, we forget the business of life, right? We lose sight of the business of life and the business of life being we're here to, uh, make life better for as many people as possible. Right. And None of us are getting out of here alive. No. So and so, end our lives for this. Yeah, why not remember? Yeah, the mortality of the more the the shortness of life and our mortality, and remember that like okay, it's not bad to have a career and 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 uh, you know make money and provide for our own, but each one of us has a responsibility to make life better for as many people as possible, and for some people that'll be a few, for some of us we've been gifted with the opportunity to do that for a lot of people, but each one of us has a role to play, and I love um, I love that. So everybody you're on notice. Mm. You, you you probably knew before if you listen to this podcast, but now you really know that you're on notice. It's, it's incumbent upon each one of us listening to do some homework, to get still, to however you need to do it, however you need to process, get still and grab a notepad and really think through who am I? How am I gifted? What can I do? What can I do at, at this point in life? And how can I increase my capacity as life uh, goes on? Super, super good stuff. Um, random question here at the end, uh, you were on, were, or still are on the board of the elders. Is that still happening? Are you still serving with that group? So this is a group. Tell, yeah. tell me more about it. So it's Desmond Tutu, Nelson Mandela, Jimmy Carter and others. Uh, this group called the elders, like what, what is that? And what role do you play there? Cause that's pretty cool. I mean, I just named three people that are, are, or were amazing humans and that, that have done and are doing so much good in the world. So how did you get involved in that?
0: Yeah, so um, Mandela, before he passed away, wanted to set up a council of, um, of independent heroes, if you will, in our time. And I say independent because it's folks that have gotten to a stage in their life that are older, that are done being president, not thinking about rerunning or done with an official capacity they had within the church and no longer hold that title, to where they were truly independent, uh, done working for the United Nations. And so now we're not constrained by that particular group. Um, And the idea that you could bring these individuals together when they were out of that season of their life and have some collective power around their thoughts and their ability to persuade people who are currently in those roles, current heads of state, um, current uh, individuals sitting on d- at different levels of the United Nations, or different individuals within the churches, etc. And so Mandela founded this organization. He put an extraordinary slate of individuals on this um, on this group, as you mentioned, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, uh, President Jimmy Carter, Mary Robinson, mm. uh, the first uh, female president of Ireland. Um, grew Bruntland, Lakdar Brahimi, uh, Ban Ki-moon is now on, on the council. And um, it's tremendous. And I was invited to sit on their advisory group. Um, and uh, there's about 12 of us that sit on that group. And we get to meet a couple times a year. And uh, and it's extraordinary to sit at the feet of these individuals and learn from them. Uh, it's also been a tremendous privilege to um, to be able to support uh, their work. And uh, and watch them be able to navigate some really sticky situations and not have to be politically correct about it, not be constrained uh, by by those types of things. Uh, you'll notice today, actually, they released a statement about the U.S. elections and um And that was pretty interesting, right? I'm used to seeing them release statements about other elections in different parts of the world uh, quite often. Uh, It was really interesting to see them release a statement about our current elections and a desire um, for America to really get their act together because the world's watching and they're keenly aware that uh, what happens here in America really does affect the rest of the world. And so it's really important as we think about how to be... Custodians of our own country, and to be good citizens of our own country, it's important for us to remember uh, that we are revered and that we have a tremendous amount of power. Often, in many of these other countries, and uh, and that we have a responsibility uh, to to really get our act together uh, for the greater good of everyone.
1: I have not seen that statement. Text it to me later, and I'll I'll include I'll include a link in the show notes because that is. Yeah, it's wild that groups like that even feel the need to put out a statement like that here. You know, there's that whole idea of too much is given, too much is too much is given, much is required, right? That biblical idea, and it feels like in the last three or four years here in the U.S., in in a stronger way, more than normal, we've forgotten the much is required part. You know, like it's there's been a lot of irresponsible use, misuse of the power that we've been given. You know. Um, And that that's super sad and sobering that a statement like that would have to be put out for us, right? Not these, Mm -hmm. not these nations that are being governed by dictators and, you know, corrupt leaders or whatever, whatever the case may be, other statements they put out, like it's here now they're sending statements here about that because it is so wild and crazy. Uh, Well, I mean, what an honor to sit on that advisory team. What a, what a privilege. I'm sure, I'm sure that's really fun for you to do. Um, And I'm glad you're there because I know that you're adding so much to that. Shannon, um, this was fun. You're amazing. You're doing incredible work. And I'm glad to know you and I'm glad that I got to introduce you to so many more people here uh, today. So thank you. Thanks so much for joining us and joining me today. And we'll we'll do it again sometime in person. We'll riff on some other stuff because there's a lot more to talk about. But for now, let's call it a day.
0: Thanks so much. And I'm so grateful to you that you use your voice in such a powerful and meaningful way. So I think you're listening to that little voice in your head um, when you choose to do this. And thank you for choosing to listen.
1: Thanks so much to Shannon for joining me, for joining us on the show today. Visit letsgiveadam.fm for links to her social media, more about her work at Bridgeway Foundation, and so much more. And while you're there, you can sign up for our email list and you can listen to the other 170, 180, I don't even know the number right now, podcast conversations there. Thank you all for listening, for sharing, liking, commenting, and all that good shit. It means the world to me. This show is produced by Chad Michael Snavely and the team at Sound On Sound Off Studios. Let's Give a Damn is part of the Matter Media family. You can reach out anytime and for any reason at at helloatletsgiveadam.com. Sending love and peace to each one of you. Stay safe keep giving a damn. Bye for now.